much as we're seeing in the rest of our society and our economy a racial reckoning and a, a recognition that many of our institutions and our practices, which we've taken for granted for, for centuries, are actually working against the best interests of humanity and nature. Hey, welcome to The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Muri, and this is an incredibly special season and a very special episode. There are some major things that have happened since the end of season three that we're going to dig into today. Number one, it's our two-year anniversary. It's now two years since The Ethical Rainmaker was launched, and this podcast as a whole has been generously supported by love from you. Your support through messages, posts, and financial support from the 65 monthly supporters that we have on Patreon, as well as the tens and thousands of downloads, has been truly incredible. I am thrilled to keep receiving emails and DMs and conversation about what this podcast is doing for you. And as travel opens back up, I am so excited to meet some of you in real life. I am so excited. Number one, it's our two-year anniversary. Number two... All This Love is going to be joined by a sponsorship. Neon One is proudly sponsoring The Ethical Rainmaker, and I've got to tell you that honestly, season four would not be happening without them. You're going to learn more about them in just a little bit. And the third and final thing, what started it all? It's the two-year anniversary of community-centric fundraising, the communitycentricfundraising.org content hub, the Slack community, the coordinated gathering of people into movement in the same direction. And wow, as a co-founder and co-chair of that effort for many years, and as someone who loves to share out inspiration, I've invited Henry A.J. Ramos and Rachel D'Souza Siebert to join us today to talk about how far CCF has come, look at our progress and our pitfalls, and talk about how we keep this growing. And before we get started with this incredible episode, I just want to acknowledge the passing of a dear friend and mentor of mine. Don Repola was a force for good in the world. She was an incredible mentor, amazing advocate. We met in Seth Godin's Akimbo podcasting course in early 2020, and in a sea of hundreds of people with many, many ideas, we found one another and became accountability buddies, checking in every week about the progress we were making. We loved what the other was building. And once I launched The Ethical Rainmaker, along with launching or helping to launch CCF Content Hub, Don then became a business mentor for me, someone I relied on heavily. Her sudden passing has left a huge hole for me personally. And I'm in the process of relearning the grief process. So in memory of Don Rapala, I dedicate this entire season and honestly, the whole podcast, because Don was key to this whole thing for me. And she would have been really proud to hear this episode in which we talk about how incredible this journey has been. And she would have been here for it for season four. So Shout out to my friend and mentor whom I love and have lost, Don Rapala. Now to today's guests. Henry A.J. Ramos is a senior fellow at the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School. He previously served as the CEO of the Insight Center for Community Economic Development based in Oakland, California. They focus on expanding economic security for disadvantaged populations across the U.S., Over the years, Henry has served on boards, including those of the Nonprofit Finance Fund, the Harvard Journal of Hispanic Policy, the Women's Foundation of California, Partners Global, the Romare Bearden Foundation, Hispanics in Philanthropy, and Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Now, you know I don't mention academic degrees on this show because our academic institutions are rife with structural racism, institutional racism, they're classist. But Henry and Rachel both have deep wells of education to draw from, and I just wanted to name that here. Rachel D'Souza Siebert is the founder of Gladiator Consulting, based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Her firm is a boutique consultancy specializing in nonprofit organizational development. She's also a member of the CCF Global Council that's going to launch very soon. She is the daughter of Indian immigrant parents. She is a postpartum SCAD heart attack survivor and a passionate advocate for bridging differences and celebrating what is possible when we collaborate from a mindset of abundance, learning, and risk-taking. Rachel currently sits on the board of the St. Louis Chapter of Emerging Practitioners in Philanthropy and the Community Advisory Board of Nine Network. She's a proud Leadership St. Louis alum and an ongoing participant in Crossroads Understanding and Analyzing Racism Workshop. 
Henry and Rachel, thank you so much for joining The Ethical Rainmaker. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Welcome. Thank Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be in conversation with you both today. Me as well. It's an honor. I'm just so excited to have this conversation because since the launch of Community Centric Fundraising's Content Hub, which is communitycentricfundraising.org, really, I feel personally, and again, like I've had skin in the game, but I feel like it's really taken off almost on a global scale. And so I thought it might be fun to kind of visit how things started, where we're at now, and see where our conversation goes. That sounds great. So I'm happy to sort of jump in here. You know, for me, a woman of color in the fundraising space, and you would read it in the very first essay, actually, that I wrote for community-centric fundraising, is very lonely being a woman of color that works in fundraising and that works in the nonprofit space. I felt like there were a lot of expectations and rules that I had to follow, uh, very many unwritten rules uh, about what it meant to be a successful fundraiser or a person who could advance relationships for my cause or for my organization. And it really, for me, was you know when I started consulting and picked up two articles. One of them was Vu's initial blog post, um, which I think was the nine principles of community-centric fundraising. That's right. Uh, came, came along in my life around the same time that Stanford Social Innovation Review published an article that talked about shifting charity from philanthropy to justice. And, you know, Michelle, you know more of my story, but I essentially started my consulting firm when I had a four-year-old and a newborn at home and had had a lot of shifting in my personal life and really wanted to find some balance between doing things that I love and doing things that I was good at in the world and being able to be the primary parent for my children while I had a traveling spouse. And when these two articles came along, it was like this light bulb moment for me, like, this is the way this work could happen. And I now run a business and I can choose to bring this to my clients and I can choose to try and quite frankly, choose to to fail and learn a lot, but I don't have to perpetuate the way that fundraising and fundraising relationships have happened. And so for me and my practice in my firm, really started testing these ideas about justice and belonging and liberation in the nonprofit fundraising space, probably back in like 2018. So when the movement launched formally in 2020, I rejoiced because I didn't know that there were other people in the world asking these questions, having these things keep them up at night. And all of a sudden, it went from, here I am, in the Midwest, in a really tough city, trying to figure out how to bring people along with this vision. And my my family exploded, right? My chosen family exploded. And so just seeing <sighs> over, you know, the course of the last two years, feeling like I was alone to, you know, there's a 5,000 plus member group on the Slack channel that interacts and learns from each other. There's content that is coming out that isn't just on the CCF hub about people trying and testing and iterating and growing. There are funders, um, and I hope you know Henry will be able to talk about this a little bit, but there are funders who are interested in changing the paradigms and shifting the status quo and thinking about power. And those are huge things to talk about when we look at the way that the sector has evolved and and the policies that govern the sector over time. So I'm excited. I'm in awe of the people that have come together in this movement. And I, I can't wait. I cannot wait to see how it grows over the next, you know, two years or 10. I I couldn't agree more uh, with Rachel. I think she really aptly put her finger on what is in play in terms of the value proposition for something like community-centric fundraising. You know, we all know that there's a history that informs the moment. This didn't just come out of nowhere. Much as we're seeing in the rest of our society and our economy, a racial reckoning and a a recognition that many of our institutions and our practices, which we've taken for granted for, for centuries, are actually working against the best interests of humanity and nature. And I think that more forward-looking funders 
who are seeking relevance, seeking impact, um, trying to do right by their stated missions and values, are coming to the conclusion that the historic and traditional conventional ways that we have done social investment uh, in the United States and around the world is fundamentally replicative of many of the inequalities and the structural barriers that uh, prevent us from fulfilling our highest potentialities, right? And I think more and more they're realizing that they can't actually be effective. They can't actually have the kinds of impacts that they're looking to have unless they are in community with the people that are closest to the problems that they are trying to address. And that typically implicates people of color, women, other populations that are traditionally othered by virtue of class status or sexual identification or other dimensionalities, ability. Um, so I think that there is now a critical mass, thanks to groups like CCF, uh, of people that are willing and ready to come to not just a conversation about how to rethink and redo the basic work that we're all committed to, but how to create a sensibility and a framework that makes this the new normal, that makes this something that is just natural for us to do in the evolution of our work. And I think that there are resistors. There are people in the field that have organized around a counter narrative to the one that we're trying to lift up. I would say with all due respect, that is not driven by a position of strength. That is driven by a position of fear and weakness. People noting the reality that these evolutions in voice and rights coming from traditionally and historically excluded populations, this is the foundational new normal. This is the new reality. And this is the future of our nation and the world. And institutions that are willing and able to adapt to this early and fully are going to be the most successful institutions in terms of the work that they're seeking to move forward. Institutions that fail to get there or resist getting there will become irrelevant and, I suspect, uh, may not even be places that we refer to in our public discourse in 10, 15, 20 years. Ooh, so well said, Henry. Thank you so much. I thank you for shedding light on this idea that it's coming from, the resistance is coming from a fear-based place. Because I have to say, that's what I've been seeing too. I mean, two themes. One, Rachel, you know, you spoke a little bit about the loneliness and feeling isolation beforehand and then finding, you know, having your chosen community, your chosen family explode, right? Which I'm, I feel mm -hmm. very lucky to be a part of one of my nonprofit soulmates, as we discussed yeah. in an IG Live earlier this year. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what we found when we were kind of putting together the concept of the content hub, before that concept was formed, there was a loosely knit group of us in the Northwest who created some research. We did qualitative survey by holding a BIPOC town hall. Over 95 people of color attended. And we had deep conversation with one another, generative conversation around what it would look like to not feel so lonely, right? What it would look like to feel connected, um, what folks needed. And we also ran a quantitative survey. Over 2,100 people across the U.S. and Canada primarily responded that were working in and around the area of fundraising and nonprofits. And there, that's where we learned that many of us feel lonely in the sector, or we're feeling lonely in the sector. Like about 80% of folks were feeling uncomfortable with the way that fundraising was happening, even though they were fundraisers themselves. Many of us feeling the cognitive dissonance of some of our practices and how they may be damaging to the communities that we're trying to serve. And then we also found this theme of loneliness. And that's really what prompted the creation of a place where we could all meet together. And so thank you for naming that. And, you know, that content hub, that work was launched in July 2020. As was mentioned, we had about, we had almost 3,000 people come to the Zoom launch. And again, this is July 2020, so it's just after the pandemic started. None of us knew how long we would be in this pandemic. And I was sitting there with a credit card just like upping our subscriptions to Zoom during that launch because we had no idea that mm -hmm. just the launch event itself would look like that. In the first week after we launched the Content Hub, I think our mailing list grew to 10,000 people from non-existent to 10,000. Then it was 18,000 and it keeps growing. We suddenly had 18,000 people visiting the site every month. So unique users just pretty quickly into the launch of that content hub. You mentioned the Slack channel, a place where people are meeting, creating community-based groups. I think 
we're at something like 93 or 94 community-based groups that are meeting on Slack and uh, therefore meeting either in person or in Zoom channels to create newly what our sector could look like, what fundraising could look like, what practices we're perpetuating that are damaging to our communities and what we could be doing differently. That's really exciting. And then there's also been, you know, Henry, as you mentioned, um, you know, there's been so much momentum around this new way of thinking. And, you know, like you said, it's it's the future. And there's also been this fear-based resistance. So thank you for naming that. I know that for me, and I'd be interested to hear for each of you too, I myself as a consultant since that time have done a lot of workshops, you know, around what it looks like to bring community-centric principles from principle into action. And every time I do a workshop or give a talk, I meet the fans of community-centric fundraising but I also am met with quite a bit of resistance as well. And I've been really grappling with what that looks like to bring some of our colleagues along into this new way of thinking. I mean, I say new, it may not be new to everybody. Like Rachel, you were saying that in 2018, you really started implementing these practices. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think about how we bring our colleagues along. Yeah, I (laughs) I have a lot of reflections on this. You know, I think one of the things that's true is that when you join the fundraising profession, or for a lot of, of people that I know, whether they're grassroots in their role or they work for a more established or you know large nonprofit, you're hopeful that you're going to be doing something good, something that matters to people, that matters to community, that you know is beneficial. And for fundraisers, I think in the context of traditional nonprofits, it has been a very bottom line mentality. But when you zoom out a little bit and you look at history and systems and relationships, we fall short of vision in, in every way. And mm. and quite frankly, you know, I don't I don't want to speak for funders, but we tell funders we're going to do a lot of things. And if we had been yeah. successful practicing donor-centered fundraising, we would have put ourselves out of business because we would have achieved the vision and solved the problem. And our funders could move on to the next phase of their work. And, you know, tell me if that has happened somewhere, because I I haven't seen it. And so it is this, you know, sort of self-fulfilling practice of let me say or do or jump through the hoop just enough to get just, you know, what I said I needed to reduce harm. And don't get me wrong, reducing harm is lovely, but it's not the highest and best use of our resources. And when we tell funders that it is, or when we make some of the promises we've made as institutions, we let our stakeholders down. And there have been times where I've been like, nonprofits, just like get out of the way. Like, how do we just move these resources into community and and let let our community make choices about those things, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think it's just about acknowledging where power lies and what's hard, but like our responsibility in perpetuating things that haven't served us. And I think the other piece of the resistance, y'all, those voices are loud. Ooh, they, they, are. Are, they are angry. <laughs> Like, I'm like, what, what happened? Do you need a hug? Like, what? There, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hate. And I see often, well, CCF just doesn't work. That's not movement language, right? There's not a development plan I can make and say, oh, I did it. CCF, check. That's we right. are inviting people in institutions to fundamentally change the way that we have been thinking about this work, the way that we have been doing this work. Change is scary. Change is hard. Change includes failure. And you don't get to fail in nonprofit land, right? If you don't do the things that you said you would do to a funder or a donor, you're screwed. So we don't take risks. We are not audacious because of the fear, right? And so when I think about CCF with our funders and our donors, the first thing that comes to mind for me is what kind of relationship is transformative if we're not honest? 
what kind of relationship is transformative if we have to hide parts of who we are to look palatable, right? Like, how could that possibly work? How could that possibly be transformative? I hear from folks, well, my donors, I, I think we would offend our donors if we started to talk about race or if we started to talk about poverty. What does it mean that we make assumptions about our donors that that they are too simple to understand complex issues or that we want to protect them. We want to protect their feelings from hard conversations. That's not respect. That's not love. That doesn't advance relationships. I think that the baseline principles of CCF and the way this work can show up not only has the opportunity to transform what individuals experience as development professionals, as fundraisers, you know, um, as people organizing money, But it could and it should has a responsibility to influence and inform the way that we are in relationship with other stakeholders in our community, especially our funders, especially our donors. We should be able to pick up the phone and say, this is a great grant process you have, but it does not serve me or the five other organizations who I need to be successful for us to be successful, right? Like Mm. we have to be willing to be honest. And when we are not, it is a disservice to everything that we choose to spend our time and our resources on. I think that's totally right. Um, Couldn't agree more. And I would say that, you know, in the larger context of modern human history, if we look at any change that has been consequential, it, it didn't happen because people wanted to necessarily play nice or by the rules. You know, people that have been affected by inequality and injustice have had to organize, they've had to to fight. They've had to be two or three times better than their opponents. But, you know, you look at women and voting rights, you look at um, BIPOC populations and human and civil rights. If you look at marriage equality in the LGBTQ community, disability rights, workers in the workplace, every one of those constituencies has had to fight like hell to get massive legislative and regulatory change in place to protect essential rights, essential opportunities, right? And this isn't personal. This is business. This is about taking care of our most basic intrinsic interests and values as human beings. And very exclusive institutions uh, and structures that we've created around things like the social investment proposition have, I think, gotten in the way. So we need fundamentally, as we're saying here in so many words, to move to a co-ownership model, something that is not Mm. hierarchical, but something Mm. that is more shared power model. We need to go from transactions to transformation. We need the truth-based approaches that we've spoken to here. We need to think about humanizing the process. And fundamentally, we need to think about restorative justice at the heart of all of this, because let's be candid. Again, most of the fortunes that were created to give rise to the initial iconic philanthropies in this nation, and the new ones that are being built as we speak, I would argue, and I think history would reflect, have been based on highly extractive, highly exploitative, and highly unequal models of asset building and asset allocation. And now, without more shared power, without co-creation, without co-ownership, we can't correct for that in a way that will happen fast enough to solve the problems that are threatening our very existence. So I think enlightened funders are well on their way to understanding this. And I think, in part, groups like community-centric fundraising and the principles that, that, that drive the movement, I think are in a very good position to engage the early adapters within the philanthropic leadership and to join forces around uh, not only a new vernacular, but a new practice, a new way of doing the business of social investment that, that really aims the goals and the aspirations that we speak to here in this conversation. You're listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Murray. We're speaking with Rachel D'Souza Siebert, member of the Global Council of CCF and the founder of Gladiator Consulting, and Henry A.J. Ramos, Senior Fellow at the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School. We're taking a look at the progress, setbacks, and future of CCF as we celebrate two years of communitycentricfundraising.org's launch. Now, a word from our sponsors. Spreadsheets and clunky databases take so much time to manage, and they leave many opportunities on the table for nonprofits. With Neon One, you can take a modern approach to donor engagement and easily stay connected with your constituents. In today's environment, managing donors, members, volunteers, fundraising, and grants should all happen in a unified, secure platform. 
So see how Neon One enables nonprofits to leave the spreadsheets and outdated databases behind with an all-in-one platform. Visit neonone.com slash Michelle. Many of our traditional practices, processes, and institutions are, as you said earlier, they're actually working against the best interest of humanity and nature. We're so used to operating in these ways. I just, I feel, you know, I have the image of being in a rutted road where our opposition to things like, I don't know, recognizing that these large wells of money, for example, like you said, being created now through extractive practices or as part of these historical iconic philanthropies, pretending like they weren't made from extractive practices. You know, that's part of the rutted road that we're digging. We're also digging that road, you know, with help from stories of how successful some of our traditional practices have been in fundraising. But just because something raises a lot of money, just because the road is rutted (laughs) does not mean it's the right one, right? Just because something works, I guess, um, or works for some people doesn't mean it's right. So yes, thank you for that. Can I add one more thing on that? Now that I'm thinking about it. Um, I I think that to to accentuate the point, you know, we tend to think of funders just in the isolated context of their giving practice. Mm -hmm. But we have to look at these institutions and nonprofits are great sources of encouragement and accountability to make this happen. We need to think of them in their role as partners. We need to think of them in their role as employers. We need to think of them in their role as investors and consumers. How do they use their money? Where do they drop their dime? And how does it affect us? And I think we need to look at their role as influencers, particularly around public information and media and around public policy. Those are all spaces and places where organized philanthropy has an outsized voice, an outsized footprint. And if it's not being used and directed in behalf of the communities and the people that are in greatest need and that historically have been the most excluded, what is the point? How will we ever get into a place where we can say we have a true democracy, where we have a, a true uh, you know, sort of community? We can't get there without really correcting for these very obvious, still unresolved blemishes in our historical record and our continuing practice. I mean, we are in a very good position to engage. Uh, Shout out to all the early adopters who are, you know, pushing for change within their organizations, their nonprofits in philanthropic leadership to join forces around a new way of doing things. It's making me think about here in St. Louis, and in other organizations across the country, but we have had the opportunity to try and test and fail and innovate and iterate with a variety of organizations of varying sizes whose leaders and boards essentially realize the way that things have been done in the sector are not going to serve the work of this organization, whether they are direct service, whether they are advocacy, you know, and organizing, whatever those things are, you can look at the community and and see the problems and situations we've been grappling with for decades, right? Um, There are a handful of funders here that have been willing to listen, that have been willing to be able to sit in the discomfort of being called out that don't take a tough conversation as a, well, we're just not going to fund them anymore, or they're too loud and they need to get back in their place. You know, honestly, it wasn't necessarily the funders that started those conversations. It was nonprofits who had to fight for what they truly needed and had to take time to build a relationship. And so now we have organizations whose EDs or development folks can pick up the phone and call a funder and say, hey, I need, I just, I want to work through this problem, or I want to talk through this issue with you. And the relationship isn't a financial transaction. It doesn't begin with an ask and end with a grant report and then start over again when the fiscal year hits the first day. It has grown into something where, to Henry's point, We see our supporters as people, as actors in the community, as influencers, as stakeholders, um, not just an entity that's financing our work. And on that same page, and I think one of the bigger struggles in the movement is that there does seem to be some 
fatigue around conversations of equity, around conversations of justice and of liberation. And it feels like when we are a funder that supports a direct action, direct service, that we have asked for these very tangible outcomes. And we want to know that a thousand books were dispersed or 500 butts have diapers or, you know, whatever this sort of very, like, I can see it and it's tangible. And when we start to talk about transformational change, it doesn't look or feel like that. And I think some folks that have really struggled to understand this movement or struggled to understand why there's so much passion around this is because it's not tangible. Movements are not like we did this and then we did this and then we checked this box and here it is and it's done, right? I think that there is a larger scale grappling with what it actually means to to engage in a movement as a fundraiser, to engage in transformative change. And when the answers aren't easy, it seems that saying no becomes the default. If I can't wrap my head around it, or if I can't see the change, or if you can't justify, provide me language to justify this to my board of trustees, I just, we're not, we're not going to do it. Right. And that has been a source, I think, of frustration for me, especially when I understand how many, how much resources exist in these organizations and that there has to be some reimagining and some comfort with reimagining what it looks like to use our resources differently. You know, when I think about this, I feel like the needing to have answers really gets in some folks' way, right? And needing to have answers, that feeling of we must have answers first before we engage in something is part of perfectionism. And perfectionism is one of the well-documented white supremacy characteristics, right? As is living in the binary, which is, you know, the either or situation, which we also do a lot of in this space, especially when we're thinking about growth and we're having trouble getting there. It's often like this either or the perfectionism getting in our way. And also when I'm, you know, when I'm thinking about what gets in our way, that focus on transactional relationships really, I feel, is part of individualistic culture And I feel that, you know, communal culture brings a more connected and transformational mindset around relationships too. And all that being said, grappling with all of this is exhausting. So I get why people are burning out. It's exhausting because there are no clear answers and it's exploratory. There is no prescriptive way to do this work. And many of us, more importantly, many of us have not been practicing what it looks like to live in the gray and to explore ideate, iterate, fail, and succeed. We're just not used to that, and it's exhausting us. It's important for us in the spirit of rethinking what is possible and what is now beginning to become the norm. It's it's important for us to build on some victories, and I think that groups like CCF have had a bearing on this. I mean, if you look at many of the leading funders that get some of the issues that we're talking about, over the last couple of three years, they've really made some strides that we need to give them credit for. I mean, a lot of them have dropped, like, previously onerous requirements around huge proposals, uh, long lead times in making decisions, onerous reporting requirements. A lot of that now is beginning to melt away, at least at the top of the food chain in terms of the early adapters to the agenda that we're speaking to. And that's a good thing. That's right. Because what we're seeing is that those organizations are not blowing up. They're not, you know, uh, disintegrating. They're not disappearing. They're actually becoming more um, user-friendly. And by virtue of that, um, they're, they're probably beginning to see better results in the way that they're actually doing the work, right? But I think it speaks to the need to go even further than than those essential reforms and changes. I think that to really experience shared power, to really uh, realize co-ownership, I think that there is a broader growing need for foundations, particularly large private foundations, to amplify their work through active engagements, uh, convening community review boards, um, Mm. conducting community-driven needs assessments supporting community organizing campaigns that are really making a difference in those communities. Because that, to me, gets to the point of what we're trying to drive here, a change in the calculus about who's really driving the essential Mm -hmm. identification of where the problems are, and most importantly, the identification of the solutions that are needed. And at what scale to make a difference, a positive difference, right? Mm -hmm. And that is really the rub of it. I I think what we're really talking around and about is this question of the level of comfort or lack thereof in larger philanthropic organizations around sharing and relinquishing power. 
That is the bottom line about what we're talking about. And at the end of the day, what I have to say comes back to where we started. There is a misnomer in philanthropy in too many quarters still that somehow the people that have the control over those resources adapt it as though they're their resources. It's kind of like, it's like Mm -hmm. they made the money and um, they can do with it whatever they please. In some cases, these are descendants of the people that actually did make the money. And so in their mind, in their family culture, they're probably speaking their truth. But the honest reality, let's be candid, is that there is a whole tax system and structure of incentives that enables this funding to be used for charitable purposes. Mm -hmm. And it's not about the idea behind that is not just about putting your name on a building. It's not about just exercising the kind of power you've had in your private life in now this new space, which is a quasi public space. These rights about, you know, how you use your resources come with responsibilities. And I think that is what is being lost in the equation when you think about the people that might contend with our position. They've lost sight of the fact that these are essentially resources that our government tax system has incented to be used for charitable purposes. It's not a vanity play. It's not a control play. In the spirit of what that law was designed to do, it's about actually putting money into places that are in the interest of the common good. And too often, uh, in too many places over the last century and a half, we've seen people misconstrue or misinterpret what is really going on here. And it just becomes a way to mitigate the payment of taxes that people don't want to pay and to, mm-hmm. to kind of have the ability to kind of control through their money relationships and institutions and transactions that have a direct bearing on communities that we're most concerned about. And it's not always a very good impact. So that is what we're trying to change. And I think that it's it's important to acknowledge that there are leading funders out there, and many of them increasingly, who are generally riffing with this line of logic. They are generally understanding that there is truth at the center of these observations, and they're grappling with ways to try and, and meet the moment. And they're up against a lot because institutionally, as we know, a lot of this DNA about exclusion and exploitation is embedded in the very mm-hmm. systems that they oversee. But I think it's really uh, incumbent on us to partner with those uh, first adapters in the funding leadership community to really come to, again, a new social contract around what is what is at play here? What is it that we're trying to achieve? And what is the best practice if we're going to be responsible and responsive to be accountable to community, to to demonstrate that, you know, after years and years and years of dropping dime in these communities, it's actually making a positive difference. Because I think, as we heard from Rachel, there is sort of the well-known song that we've all kind of, you know, had to sing about just trying to get on the chain where every year or two, they'll throw you a couple of tidbits and you make the most of it that you can. It's never close to the mark that you really need to hit to be what we would call sustainable or independent. And that is suspicious. That is suspicious because I know as a person that has worked at large funding institutions, many of those funding institutions have been funding some of the same anchor organizations in the social justice and civil rights fields or in the economic rights and justice fields for decades. And yet, even the largest of many of these organizations, the anchors in our communities are nevertheless not independent. They don't have huge endowments. They don't have agency to actually speak their truth. They are on a short rope, uh, on a short chain to kind of continue to make uh, their work happen through the fluidity of philanthropic investment. They have to keep those funders happy. If funders were very serious in a way that I, I know some are now, but too few, to actually make a difference, they would endow these organizations. They would create self-sufficiency models for them to actually make it or lose it on their own. And I would welcome that opportunity. I think our communities would welcome the challenge to step into that to say, hey, don't just throw me $5 for a $5 billion problem. Give me $5 million that at least gives me a chance to make a dent. And then get out of the way. Trust me enough to know that you've made a good decision and, and let me do this without you breathing down my neck or strapping me down with like a weekly report or some other accountability mechanism. Because if you really believe in what we're trying to do, and you really believe that we're the best partners to do it, wouldn't that naturally be the outcome? That is the imperative for the moment that we're in, as I see it. Yeah. You know, we have a couple organizations in St. Louis. I'll, um, you know, our, our community foundation, for example. When COVID started, when this most recent 
chapter of racial unrest was louder and more prominent, I believe, in 2020, they created a pot of money and asked community leaders to give it away. They, oh. they got out of the way. And so there are grassroots institutions who didn't fit the criteria or didn't have two years of audits or were, you know, fiscally sponsored who were literally receiving life-saving resources because they finally had visibility, right? They finally had reach. They had an advocate that was able to connect them to a hundred plus year old institution in this community, right? Who is very generous and very well resourced, but these smaller institutions who are doing the work in and of community we're never going to make time to send the email. They were never going to make time to fill out the LOI. And here there is an opportunity for a different kind of relationship and a different kind of movement with our resources. And I, oh, I deeply desire more of that. What if we trust? What if we open our hearts and our pocketbooks to trusting and then we get out of the way? I think you're right. It's important to call out leaders that are stepping into this, Darren Walker being one of them. I think uh, Dr. Robert Ross at the California Endowment being another, Crystal Hailing at the Libra Foundation. These are foundation executives of color who have demonstrated the value of diversity and inclusion and equity within the social giving sector, right? It makes a difference who's at the helm and how they lead, right? And these are exemplars, I think, that are really natural allies for the kind of work that the community-centric a fundraising movement is trying to, you know, to, to secure and align with. So I, I think it's important to give credit where credit is due. And I think it's important as well to continue to push and to frankly create a bit of discomfort in places where people are slow to move. This is the nature of what it takes to build and sustain a democracy. And Lord knows we're in a moment right now in our history where that is all up for grabs. Right. So this is not just stuff that is incidental and kind of a sideshow in terms of that little corner of the table that deals with philanthropy and social investment and nonprofits. I think we have an outsized influence on the way that we actually conduct our business in the public square and democracies on the chopping block. And we need to kind of declare this idea of neutrality or not getting involved in things that might be uh, controversial or political. I think is increasingly an unacceptable position for our mainline philanthropies to carry forward. There is no room for neutrality when it comes to the kinds of issues that we're dealing with in terms of our political democracy, our economic democracy and vitality, and our ability to to transform as a culture from a very rigidly hierarchical and white supremacist-driven approach to governance to something that is a far more multicultural, shared and joined model of um, coexistence. And what will happen in history is to be determined, but it it won't be the product of just happenstance. The side that will win in this larger struggle for the future will have won because they will have out-organized, they will have out-thought, and they will have outspent their competition. And that is what's at stake here. That's the reason why organizations like CCF are so vital. Organizations like Edgar Villanueva's Decolonizing Wealth Project is another one that comes to mind. Edgar and his uh, team have been pushing very hard and very intelligently against that wall, just as CCF has. So we need to join forces with one another. We need to put the pressure and the heat and keep it on. And obviously, we need to uh, organize and join forces to uh, expand our numbers so that this becomes a robust global movement, not just something that is... um, really well-developed here in the United States. And I think that's what CCF is contributing to, and that's why it's so timely and important to be having this conversation. You are listening to The Ethical Rainmaker, and I'm your host, Michelle Shireen Murray. Did you know The Ethical Rainmaker is now accepting sponsors? You can join our community of individual supporters on Patreon. And if you want to find out how to get your name and your work out to our ever-expanding community, drop us a line at theethicalrainmaker.com. We'd love to have you. Now let's get back to our conversation with Henry and Rachel. Henry, I appreciate you, you know, raising the conversation about, you know, taking this movement global. That is sort of where the CCF founding council envisioned this work going. And so over the course of the last year or so, there have been a small group of volunteers 
working to sort of figure out how do you invite others into the movement? How do you advance these conversations and offer resources to communities who may not look or sound or feel like yours, but are ultimately suffering from the same systemic problems or the same marginalization? And how do we build this, you know, network of support? So we have found a set of amazing humans who are going to be a part of this global council. And one of the things that has been, I think, exciting for me about the process is being able to look at this and say, if we're in a movement, this isn't about hierarchy. So what does it look like to bring in a vast group of people with different skills and different interests and different availability and different passions and create something that is flat? Um, How do we not perpetuate the principles of white supremacy, even though we feel the urgency of this moment? As I said before, one of the biggest, I think, successes for me is that it's growing. It didn't stop. It wasn't a fad that fizzled out. There is movement here. And I can't help but think about Building movements projects has this ecosystem of social change or something. I'm probably butchering that, but it has a variety of different roles that you engage in in movement work. And it doesn't ask us to be a hierarchy, it doesn't ask for a leader, but it asks us to identify where we are skilled and talented and brilliant. And, and where we're not, right? Get out of the way. <laughs> if you can't do it, you don't have to be everything to everyone. Um, we don't want you to burn out in this work. That's not the point. But do the thing that you're good at that advances the movement, right? And that that isn't everything. That is picking the place and starting. And I think that is what is the most beautiful and incredible piece of it, that individuals and institutions have really seen themselves seen opportunity, seen possibility in these initial, you know, 10 principles and have taken it and made it something that, you know, and Michelle, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that the founding council couldn't have even imagined for this work. For me, getting to be a part of of the global council and having sort of a new set of peers in this conversation to hear what their thoughts and dreams are about where this work goes and what it means for community. Like me by myself with my boutique consultancy and say, like, I would have never dreamed of the fact that we could have these kinds of partnerships and that these conversations aren't going away. That's right. Ooh, thank you so much for that. It's, it's so true. These conversations aren't going away. This is the future. Just a quick shout out. One, Henry, you mentioned crystal hailing Shout out to the Libra Foundation, who was one of the first supporters of community-centric fundraising as we raised money to build that content hub. A shout out to Edgar Villanueva and the Decolonizing Wealth Project. Many people don't know the secret fact, but um, when I started, like the very first month I decided that I was going to go into consultancy, Edgar and the Decolonizing Wealth Project were my very first clients. So that is really what, that's really what, yeah, made a huge difference um, to my work and my career. Honestly, I heard that man speak about the book before it came out and I was like, yes, like that was really my moment of inspiration of, yes, I can stay in this game. You know, so many fundraisers, so many folks Mm -hmm. who work in nonprofits and philanthropy just drop out because there mm-hmm. are so many demoralizing things that can happen. There is a lot of cognitive dissonance. But for me, hearing Edgar, we were I was already part of CCF, but hearing Edgar talk about the, his upcoming book before it came out was just an incredible moment. So shout out to Edgar. But Henry, I just want to thank you for naming uh, philanthropy as an economic system, right? And for me, I feel comfortable saying that philanthropy is a political and an economic system. And for many of us in the nonprofit sector and in philanthropy, we have been lacking an awareness. And that's what that's one of the things that I work on when I'm thinking about how do we how do we move the dial around how our colleagues are thinking or where there is resistance. And I think one of those things is to name some of the truths, some of the things that we haven't been talking about, right? The folks who wrote the revolution will not be funded, they attempted this. 
many years ago to kind of provide more of an analysis. That analysis devastated some of us. I remember throwing the book across the room and being like, how can I stay in this profession if it's all doomed? You know, what like, what can I do? My conclusion for many of us who are grappling with what does it mean to do something differently is really to build an analysis. And Rachel, you were talking to this earlier that there isn't a prescription for what it looks like to be like, there is no development plan that's like, yes, checkbox, checkmark. I created a, you know, community centric fundraising based development plan. There is no one plan that would work for every organization. There is no one plan that would work for every foundation in terms of the, the way that they're interacting with community. But philanthropy is a political and economic system that has been perpetuating wealth accumulation, has been perpetuating some financial control and consolidation of power among families or among folks who are elite in the name of public good, taking a look at that, taking a look at the way that wealth was made. You named this earlier too, that wealth accumulation in our country has had a violent history of stolen labor and stolen land and genocide and obviously colonization and and enslavement of people, you know, for the good of the dollar. And wealth accumulation also continues till this day through extractive practices. So, you know, in terms of thinking about foundations and philanthropy, there is no one size fits all solution when we're looking at huge systemic issues like how wealth was made, how it should be distributed, who was damaged in the making of that money, right? When we when we start thinking about reparative ways in which that money could be used, who's who's receiving it. And Henry, to your point, so many folks who are in charge of allocating resources end up thinking about those resources as their own versus belonging to the folks or the land uh, that was extracted from and the communities that were extracted from. So thank you for naming all those things. I want to speak to something that we haven't spoken to yet, and that is what it takes on the nonprofit side. Because we often, you know, we've been talking about philanthropy and foundations and the way the resistance that exists and what the future may hold. And also, I want to give a special acknowledgement to folks who are working in nonprofits, which is that we've been talking about a few of the ways in which nonprofits could interact with foundations. But that also means that we ourselves working within nonprofits must also practice what that looks like and start having those conversations. So actually, it's just like fundraising, right? Like many people don't give a gift unless they're asked. And in that same way, we often don't get to change what's happening unless we're pushing for it or asking for it or engaging in those conversations. So I will often see, you know, that root of fear, what happens if I, in this relationship, I push and they don't like it and they stop funding me. Totally a reality, but also as we work towards transformational relationships and really spend more time, if we can spend more time with the folks who are in charge of funding and build relationships that are based in trust and mutual interest in moving communities and our goals forward, then we can also start engaging in more difficult or challenging conversations. I see so much fear when we're talking about like principle six, for example, which is having transparency with our donors. And that sometimes means having honest conversations uh, that might look a little bit difficult. Um, I worked at Northwest Immigrant Rights Project for 10 years. I was a development director for the majority of that time. It's the largest immigrant rights legal aid nonprofit in the United States, and it just serves Washington State. And so I was there for many years, and often in conversations, we would hear really racist things said. But do you have the conversation with a donor who's about to give you $50,000 about the racist thing they said, or do you just swallow it and move on, right? Like, and, and that's, we get stuck in those conversations as fundraisers specifically, as nonprofits in general, we get stuck in the conversations where we're not sure, you know, what to push for if it feels safe. And we often, instead of pushing for what's best for our communities, are shying away. But this is the dawn of a new era. And I think one of the things that will be essential to the nonprofit worker, the nonprofit organization is doing the practice, doing the work around getting more comfortable having these conversations so that we also are part of pushing change forward. 
You know, Michelle, you're making me think about the work of one of our clients, Ford through Ferguson, which was the organization that was formed after the Ferguson Commission uh, sunsetted here in St. Louis. The Ferguson Commission was appointed by our governor after the murder of Michael Brown back in 2014. The Ferguson Commission and subsequently Ford through Ferguson created a document and essentially it's called their Principles of Partnership. And I think two of these principles that really guide all of all of the work of the organization are a culture of trying and a culture of radical collaboration. And the culture of trying has allowed for them to be clear in their objections, in their pushback, in their questioning of systems and structures. And the idea of radical collaboration is almost the opposite of cancel culture. It is an opportunity to stay in dialogue, it is an opportunity to stay listening, and it is uncomfortable. Radical collaboration and trying is uncomfortable because as I shared before, we do not have a sector that can tolerate failure. We are fragile about failure. And and these things happen with practice. They don't happen once and we and we did it well. And so We are able to, as an institution, hold each other accountable to our principles of partnership. We are able to hold our partners and our stakeholders accountable to these principles of partnership and are able to tell the stories of when the persistence has paid off. And so I think that nonprofits and folks in this work are used to feeling siloed and working within themselves or working within the institution. And sometimes I almost think the first step of this work is simply being vulnerable to what exists outside of what you believe um, or what your lived experience has been. And I know for me, when I was willing to do that, the universe continues to shower me with gifts like you and like Henry and like the other (laughs) thousands of people that are here. So it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be explosive. It doesn't have to swallow up your resources. But what is the small place that you start to entertain that a different future is possible for us? That's the thing that will keep me, keep me up at night and keep me moving in this work. Yeah, I would, um, I would agree with all of that. And you know, it, it is incumbent on us as nonprofit uh, advocates and leaders to obviously take care of our business. You know, that's kind of the first order of your responsibility. And uh, I'm, I don't mean that in an individuated or a selfish kind of way. I'm actually thinking of it in a much more expansive way. But we do need help from our funders and our donors to get there. So I think that, you know, it's imperative that we not shy away from advocating loudly and strongly and consistently for things like living wage and benefits for our workers so that, you know, we're, we're not always having to do the work essentially for nothing and replicate some of the exploitation that's going on in the larger economy and society. We should be really encouraging our nonprofits to join forces around bulk purchasing so that they can minimize mm-hmm. the unit cost of getting access to technology or services or other back office supports that they require to be efficient and effective. Um, We need to get with our funders to ensure that we, at scale, create uh, property acquisition and ownership um, uh, opportunities for nonprofits, Mm. maybe through land trusts or or shared spaces at scale that can really enable um, organizations to come together and identify synergies and new opportunities to expand their impact. And we need much more collective action, much more joint investment in everything from organizing to innovation. And these are things that the nonprofit sector and its leaders need to drive, particularly in the most needy and overlooked communities. But we need to do that in concert with people that are natural allies on the funding side. That, it seems to me, is a a menu of investments that are ready to order. We just need more takers on the funding side to actually help our nonprofit leadership get there. And we need more harmonization of advocacy at the nonprofit leadership level to crystallize those kinds of value-added investments that are not just one-time money drops, but that are drops that actually build in exponential benefits that go with them over time, which include the ownership model, profit uh, sharing and distribution, much more broad distribution across a, a fair slice of, of beneficiaries, and 
the idea really at the end of the day, I think for most of our communities is to establish a new model of philanthropy where it's not, again, extractive and exploitative where people are kind of coming in and taking people's you know, time, their, their ideas, and then even sometimes their money and taking it somewhere else. We want to kind of create the capital within the community, building on the community and keep it in the community so that it becomes exponentially more helpful with each passing generation. That to me, it mm. seems is the idea and nonprofits and, and, and progressive funders need to join forces to model what that looks like in reality. And I think that um, we talked about some of the early adapters and the specific individuals in the field that are in that camp. We need to grow that family of practitioners and allies and we need to scale these efforts in a way that make them, again, more the norm than the exception in the space. Legit. Henry, is there anything that you think that foundations need to hear as we think about like successes in building momentum and fundraising? Um, is there anything that you think that they should hear that we didn't talk about yet? Well, I mean, I think for funders that are on the fence who are maybe recognizing that they need to and could do more but who are afraid and uncertain about how to proceed. I, I would just urge them to see groups like the community-centric fundraising movement as natural allies, natural mm-hmm. resources to them, not people to be ignored or held at arm's length or held in suspicion. You know, I think in the nature of the society that we live in and its commitments to democracy and open society practices, the raw reality of it is that it's all a negotiation. You know, at the end of the day, we have the society that is the product of our negotiations and our agreements with one another, right? And the problem that we have, as we well know, is that we have certain stated uh, agreements in the public arena that we are not honoring in practice. And we have long ago let go of the commitment to do that. And we're trying to course correct, right? We're trying to catch up with history and, you know, kind of drop down an intervention that helps us become more whole by becoming more uh, inclusive, right? So I think that any funder that is committed to the things that go with that, um, even if they don't know how and they don't feel comfortable and they're a little shy or embarrassed about how to proceed, I think it's incumbent on them to really go the whole way to engage with groups like the community-centric fundraising family because ultimately, there is no other way out of this paper bag. You know, um, if you want to to play in this space and you want to make a meaningful difference that's going to stand the test of time and history, this is the path to be on. This is the conversation to be in. This is the agenda to activate around. If you are hesitant, if you are reluctant, and if, certainly if you are resistant, as I said earlier, I think your relevance is on the chopping block. I think that your ability to continue to claim the privileges that come with your position will diminish over time because let's face it, demography is history. And in our culture, no matter what the news cycle may tell us is happening, we are changing as a society from the bottom up. Our leaders have yet to get that memo. Our institutions have yet to reflect that reality. But it is but a matter of time when people who have been on the outside for too long in growing numbers will ultimately overtake the system that has created that dynamic. And it can be bloody and violent, or it can actually be healing and wholesome for all involved. The choice is ours. No one's going to impose that on us. The choice is ours. It's that simple. And I think that you know, for those that really want to do right by history, for those that want to have impact on the issues that we claim to all care about, um, for those that are committed to the best traditions of the social investment sector, this is the future. And if you're not with us, but against us, I think you do that at your own risk. You do that in a way that closes your aperture and you're on your camera in terms of the lens that you're looking at life through. And if you're looking at life through a very closed lens and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, it takes you to a place where you can't see the obvious anymore. I think all we're trying to do is to lift up the mirror to state and show the obvious. And people who are really, I think, uh, interested in success, people of integrity who really want our field to win, um, are going to be with this agenda. There really is no alternative at this point. Rachel, Henry, it is such a pleasure to have you on The Ethical Rainmaker. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to move this movement forward and to make change and to identify those levers of power and move them. It is such an honor to be in relationship with both of you. Thank you for everything you do. And thanks for being here today. 
This was wonderful. It was incredible to be in conversation with you both. And I am so excited for what has happened and what is to come. And I too am very thrilled for the new connections that we're all establishing and for the common uh, framework that we're thinking about and trying to make more viral in the space. So thank you for your leadership, Michelle. And thank you for what you do, Rachel. You're awesome. Right back at you. And that's it for the first episode of season four on The Ethical Rainmaker. If you're inspired by what you hear, share this pod, join our mailing list, engage with us on socials, write us a review. We are here for it. And honestly, we're here specifically for you because we bring these stories and case studies to you free of charge so that we can all do better in the work to further our communities. Thank yous go out to our ever-expanding community of Patreon supporters, now at 65, including our newest Nate, Kyleen, Anne, and Asia. Thanks, y'all. You too can join this community of supporters at Patreon. And speaking of support, we are so excited to have Neon One as our first official sponsor. So if you're interested in sponsorship, feel free to reach out and drop us a line at hello at theethicalrainmaker.com. The Ethical Rainmaker is produced by Kazmara Hall and Juliana Mayo, with socials by Stacey Wynn Creative and production assistance by Coco Decker. Thank you again to Henry and Rachel for giving us your time in conversation today. And as always, find links and transcripts at theethicalrainmaker.com. Our awesome theme song is I'm Gold by Trick Candles, and you can find them on Bandcamp. The Ethical Rainmaker comes to you again in two weeks, and you're going to love what's next. See you later. This episode was sponsored in part by my friends over at Neon One. They're one of the most forward-thinking companies I know, putting innovation at the top of their priority list in order to better serve nonprofits. Their solutions, like the Neon CRM, enable nonprofits to manage donors, members, volunteers, fundraising, grants, and more from a unified, secure system. Learn how Neon One is continuing to innovate and support growing nonprofits by visiting neonone.com/michelle.